Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Today's episode is brought to you by The Heroine's Knot, an online community for creative creatures on the quest for self-expression and collective renewal. In this group, we untangle the knots of our contemporary creative lives, connect to the greater web, and weave new stories. Part healing space, part writing and creative community, part innovation incubator, part training ground for heroines seeking practical and magical solutions to the individual and collective dilemmas that shape our modern world. In The Heroine's Knot, we call on mythology, archetypal wisdom, and our relationship with nature. We root into something wild and timeless, even as we design something new and necessary that will guide our next evolutionary steps. Learn more about the Heroines Not community over on my website, marisagowdy.com, or check the show notes for the link. Season 2, Episode 3. Landscape, Lovers, and Mycelial Consciousness. The Story of Tristan and Isolde. Our guest is Sophie Strand. Sophie is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. Her first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, will be published by Inner Traditions in fall of 2022 and is available for pre-order now. Her eco-feminist historical fiction reimagining of the Gospels, The Madonna Secret, will also be published by Inner Traditions in spring of 2023. I am so excited to welcome Sophie Strand onto Not Work Storytelling today. As is our way here on the podcast, we let the story speak for itself. So we'll begin here and then we'll discuss what comes through and all the ideas that emerge from Sophie's story of Tristan and Isolde. Thank you so much. So Tristan and Isolde is probably the precursor to the King Arthur stories. It's the seed that germinates into them. And we have our star-crossed lovers. We have our castle. We have our issues with loyalty and duty. And in it, we have a fractionated England in the wake of Roman rule. And then we have Ireland semi-protected from this imperial incursion where they still have access to their older mythology and practices. But unfortunately, there is enmity between Ireland and England, and England is not a unified nation. There are factions that are warring with each other, and King Mark of Cornwall is seen as one of the strongest representatives of what could be a unifying figure. And I believe it is his sister, Queen Blanche Fleur, marries King Rivalin of Lioness. Lioness, which is a very complicated place historically. It may have not existed. It may have been a part of the coast of England that was washed away during the Bronze Age collapse. And it's a very interesting pocket of legend, what Lioness is, where it could have been. But King Mark's sister, 
marries the king of lioness and they have a child. But the child is born under very tragic circumstances, which is King Rivalin has been in battle against one of his petty adversaries and he's killed. And Tristan's mother finds out about the death of her husband and dies as she's giving birth to Tristan. And so typically it is said that he's called Trist for sadness, Tristan, to represent the sadness. So he's seated with the sorrow as a famous tragic figure He begins, his name is that curse. Don't name a thing too quickly. He is seated with this story before he can choose it. And so he is raised by one of his father's best friends as a foster child, but he doesn't know his true identity. And then, and his brothers, he's treated very, very well though, like almost too well. And one of my favorite things to say is like, let's look at the overlaps with other mythologies. It very much for me echoes the story of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Joseph of Egypt, which is his brothers are very jealous of how his father treats him. He gets very fancy things. So his brothers sell him into slavery, which is basically what happens with Tristan, which is he's sold probably by his brothers to pirates. But in another overlap, with another story, once he gets on that ship, bad weather kicks up. So we have Jonah and the whale. We also have the story of Dionysus from Jason and the Golden Fleece, which is sort of the second that this magical boy gets on this boat, trouble is brewing. And the pirates realize they need to get rid of him immediately. (laughs) So they throw him off the boat and he washes up on the shores of Cornwall. And what is very interesting is he is canny, that Tristan is supposed to represent a hero, but he's very mischievous and tricky. He's always much more like the trickster than he is the noble, valorous hero. And so he immediately realizes he's going to lie about his identity, be very secretive and strategic. And he sees that a royal retinue is on a hunt and they're trying to hunt a white stag. And after they kill the stag, he approaches them and says, I'm very, very good at cutting up the stag. There's a specific word for it that I'm forgetting right now, but I know the exact precise way to do this that is beautiful and elegant. And so he shows the hunters how to do this. And they're so impressed that they bring him back to court. And Mark, King Mark is so impressed by this young boy who has the skills of the hunt that he makes him the Lord of the hunt, which for me, of course, shows us that We have King Mark who represents imperialism, England, who has more of a relationship with Rome and horseback riding, kingship. And then we have Tristan, who is Lord of the Hunt, Lord of the Beasts, of this older Paleolithic intelligence who comes from the wilderness of lioness from the old Bronze Age, who comes to tell you how to interact with animals and be in charge of the hunt. And so you have these two interesting figures, which for me, of course, map onto King David and King Saul. And just like the story of King David and King Saul, Tristan brings out his harp and begins to play and enchants Mark. And suddenly Mark is totally in love with this boy. I mean, and of course, this is very, you know, you look at the many different versions of the story and you say, this seems like erotic love. Like this is his uncle, but this is very intense adoration that this king has for Tristan. It must feel onerous and intense. But they don't know that they're related. But Mark elevates Tristan to more and more status. And what's interesting to me is the more status that is given to Tristan, the more he seems to itch against it. That it's funny that Joseph Campbell, who thought of Tristan as being the epitome of the hero's journey, has chosen a figure who's desperately trying to escape it. 
who's jumping out of boats, out of stories, off of cliffs, who's always trying to escape his name, sorrow, and his thrust into um, the trauma of the hero's journey. And so finally, Tristan's foster father who loves him has been looking for him and he comes to court. And there's that moment of agnorisis, I think it's called in Greek, agnorisis. It's like the moment of recognition, the turn, the plot, the turn in the plot where characters recognize each other. And it is revealed that Tristan is the heir to King Rivalin, who's been killed, and the nephew of Mark. And Mark, of course, is overjoyed by this. And he wants Tristan to take over his kingship of Lioness. But Tristan doesn't want to be king, which is such an interesting tension. So Tristan, at the moment when he's supposed to be a king, instead he gives his kingdom to his foster father. He says, I don't want to be a king. I don't want to be a hero. I don't want to step into the patriarchal King Arthur role. And then Mark says, well, actually, if you're not going to take your kingdom, I'll make you the heir to my kingdom. And this is a great moment because Tristan is suddenly in a real bind. He's being written into a story that he does not want to participate in. So he does a suicidal attempt <laughs> to exit it. I always think that he's doing these wild moves that are almost suicidal to exit the story, which is he challenges. There's an incredibly legendarily violent Irish soldier who comes over to take slaves from the English and to terrorize the English. And the English have kind of pacified the Irish by giving them slaves every couple of years. And so Morhol comes over to get the slaves and Tristan goes, no, I'm going to challenge him. And here we have, of course, another King David overlay, which is the young boy challenges the giant. Morhol is supposed to be older, incredibly skilled and much bigger. Tristan is young, young boy, and everyone tells him not to do it. And so they challenge each other to a duel. And Morhol even says like, do you really want to do this? Like, Think about this. I'm not sure I want to do this. We know how this is going to end. And Tristan goes, no, I would really, really like to do this. So, and Mark is devastated. Mark, everybody knows that this is ill-fated. So Tristan says they should do it on an island. And I always love that a lot of Tristan's biggest moments happen in liminal zones, in the ocean between Ireland and England, in this forest glen, in these liminal spots. And so he picks an island that's not in England or Ireland. They bring one boat so that only one person can leave. And they fight and Tristan wins. But as he's winning, he gets glanced by the sword of Morhol, which is covered in poison. And an interesting thing is he, so he's, he wins, but he's wounded permanently. And the wound stinks. And this is across many different versions of the story the wound is always stinky, <laughs> which I think is fascinating, which is repugnant and it doesn't heal. It refuses to heal. I love the idea of the poison sword because in the earliest ideas of poison, poison is, is a modern understanding because we don't understand dosages of anything. So we have to be very clear about what is medicine and what is poison. But in an earlier understanding, there was the pharmacon, which it totally depended on dosage. It could be a medicine, it could be a poison, it could flip into either or. So that potion and poison are doublets. A potion can kill you and it can harm you. And so I've always thought of the poison that wounds Tristan, it's actually the poison, the potion that leads him to his beloved. Because the only person who can end up curing him is the famous herbalist Azold in Ireland. It's a mutable poison potion 
that he is infected with. So, of course, in another attempt to exit the story, he says to his friends, I'm so stinky. <laughs> it's really what he says. He says, I'm so stinky. I need to leave. And I don't think I'm going to make it. And it, I can't be around you guys. If there's any hope for me, it's somewhere else. Put me out into the sea in a rudderless boat. And of course, the rudderless boat is a famous mythic symbol. I mean, we even see it in the, in the legends of Mary Magdalene, that her and her brother and Lazarus were put in a rudderless boat. It represents the night sea journey. You go out on the rudderless boat at night to see what other myth you arrive in. And so Tristan chooses to get in that boat, not with a sword, but with his harp, which is such an interesting choice for me. He says, I don't want the hero's journey. I don't want to be the hero. I want to be the magician. I want to be the musician. So he gets in the boat and he escapes. Although I would say that getting into that boat would very much look like a suicide attempt. <laughs> He's infected. He has a wound. He says, I don't want any sail. I don't want anything to defend myself. This is the end. And a lot of times during that time period, one of the ways in which people were buried often was that they were put in boats and put out to sea. And often those boats were caught on fire. So we can also see it as a kind of funerary ritual. However, that boat washes up on the shores of Ireland and who should find him but the double goddess, the mother and the, the daughter who are both named as old, the, the queen is old and the princess is old, who are both talented herbalists. And right there, we see Demeter and we see Persephone. We see the double goddess that exists in the Mediterranean basin. We, we've seen so many statues going all the way back to the Paleolithic period of the mother and the maiden. And so we see this mother and maiden on the shores of Ireland welcoming in Tristan. And they don't know that he is the person who killed Morhol, who is Isolde's uncle. They don't know that he's their worst enemy. They think that he is a harpist that he's a traveling bard, that he's very handsome and young and he needs help. And so they cure him and he takes on the name Tantris. And he's always being very tricky. He's always in disguise. So he disguises himself. He says, my name is Tantris. I will be Isolde's tutor. And so he tutors Isolde in music and he becomes known in the court of Ireland as a musician. And yet he is nervous about being found out. And he's always caught between stories. He misses Mark. Mark is basically his father figure. There's also an erotic element. He misses his friends. And so eventually he leaves and goes back to England for a kind of resurrection experience because everyone thought he was dead. And so when he returns, it's incredibly joyful. And King Mark says, I think I am ready to have a wife. And in, there are very many different variations of the stories, but in one of them, I think it's a sparrow comes with a golden thread of hair and Tristan takes it as a symbol that he should tell King Mark about his old and tell King Mark that he should marry the princess as old. So Tristan is very bad at reading his own motives, that Tristan doesn't realize that he is very interested in his old. And instead he creates this very deranged plan to set his old up with King Mark. And he thinks that it's a great way actually to create a union between Ireland and England. So he goes to try and win the challenge the Irish king has set, which is to slay this dragon. And I could go on. The one thing about the Tristan story is that it's very, very, very long. And there are many different versions of it. It definitely represents earlier oral storytelling in that it's episodic rather than linear. And that it eventually ends, but what it's really interested in is a lot of minor episodes, which we see in, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad. 
And it doesn't really want to conform to a textual linear climactic narrative. So there are a lot of side adventures in these stories. And one of them is so eventually he kills the dragon, he wins his old, but there's a there's a lot of back and forth. His true identity is revealed to his old. She's very angry. She almost kills him in a bathtub. But there's something about this conflict, this gender reversal, where he is naked in a bath. She's threatening him with a sword. There's a lot of these interesting like Shakespearean gender flips that happen in the story. And eventually, Tristan is bringing his old on a boat. We're in that liminal realm between countries, between water and land, back to King Mark and Branya. Isolde's maid brings out another pharmacon, a potion poison, something that can flip both ways. And she's brought it because she wants to be able to give it to Isolde so Isolde will fall in love with King Mark. This is an arranged marriage. The potion can perhaps create the semblance of love. Problem is, what seems clear to me is that Tristan and Isolde are already in love and then they accidentally drink the poison. And so in my read of it, when you drink a love potion and you're already in love, it creates a love that's almost poisonous. And which is what we see happen, which is suddenly these, these two aren't just in love, they're obsessed with each other. And it's this obsession that's going to, you know, it's got Gottfried von Strasberg's 13th century version. He says, they who were two and divided became one and united. No longer were they at variance, they shared a single heart the two were both one in joy and sorrow. And so it's always stressed that it's almost as if they share a body. They go through a symbiogenetic merger that is complicated and tragic by virtue of having this love potion. The fallout from this is that while Isolde really admires King Mark and wants to be faithful to him and Tristan wants to be a good friend, they end up carrying on a long illicit affair that they try and break off and it causes them to be extraordinarily deceitful. And the interesting thing about this narrative is it becomes Christianized as it's retold, but it's hero and heroine lie and cheat and are disguised. And they do things that are very opposed to Christian morality, which is interesting and something that Joseph Campbell spent a lot of time trying to understand. And so they carry on this this long affair, one version King Mark finds out, almost kills his old, Tristan escapes with her. One of the famous themes, thematic episodes, is that they escape to the forest and live in a forest grotto together for a period of time. But the sad, tragic element is they choose to leave, they choose to go back, and that they can't seem to make it. They can't seem to be able to allow themselves to just leave the world of nobility and social responsibility. And they, they feel very fractured when they actually claim their love and leave. And through many, many different side episodes, Tristan goes, marries another woman called Isolde, <laughs> has another best friend who it's a little homoerotic with called Kierden. Then he makes a statue of the real Isolde. He goes as a jester back to the court of King Mark and has, has sex with Isolde. There are lots of many different episodes, but ultimately what happens is in a very petty skirmish, not even in a dynamic and important battle, Tristan is again wounded and is dying. And he sends his friend to get Isolde to come. And his wife is old. So we have three Isolds. We have a trinity of Isolds here. His wife is old, lies to him and says that his real love is old is not coming. And just as his, his real love is about to arrive, 
he dies. And ultimately the two lovers both die and are buried together. And in, in alternating versions of the story, two willows grow up together, thorn bushes, holly, but two plants grow together over their graves, which for me is such an interesting idea also because what we see is that the Tristan story becomes the fertile soil for the Arthurian legends. So you see the plants grow up out of it. You, you see the round table grow up out of the soil of this Tristan and this old story. Yeah, so that's, the, I think, the, the general scheme of it. Wow. <laughs> And I assume that's really what the reaction, the only reaction we can have to the Tristan and old story is, is somewhere between the wow and that desire to track it and to follow all the different pieces <laughs> and to just embrace the tangle of it that says, yeah. here, you have to take it in its totality. And yet you did such a brilliant job of helping us follow the strands. So thank you. Thanks. I feel like I'm doing it such a disservice. There's so many other episodes, but I would say that that's the beautiful thing about it. It's a bowl that you can keep pouring narrative into. Um, yeah. And it allows it to be all the more of a real story. I mean, when someone at the end of a life, when you tell all of your stories, it's mostly side quests, right? I mean, exactly. we don't have a unit of personal narrative yeah. and nor do they over the centuries of the retelling and over the complexities of their humanity and other than human ways. I mean, because there certainly are elements of magic in this story that seem to keep weaving through, as well as just that deep connection to the earth itself, to the wild, to the magic of the, to the power of the plants, I suppose, which is magic or otherwise. And then that tug to civilization and chivalry and culture yeah. and, oh, what richness. So this is a novel in process for you? Yeah. So it's funny that I have gotten traction as a writer of nonfiction because I mostly see myself as a writer of long, blousy historical fiction. Way mm. too long, way too many characters. This is the next novel I want to write. But the truth is that place is so important for me that I don't think I can write this, this book until I've spent time in Cornwall, until I've lived there and eaten the soil and gotten the consent of the land to do this work. And novel writing is slow and hygienic. It is, you go, you do it every day. You wake up, you never miss a day. And it takes a long time to pull off a multi-character, multi-episode epic. And so I would say this is probably years out. Okay. Yeah. My last long novel took three years to write, mm -hmm. maybe two, two years to write, one year to really heavily revise. Mm -hmm. So hopefully next year I'll be able to write, start beginning to write this. I have it all plotted, right. all researched. So I just need that landscape to hold me and inspire me. Mm. It's like the yeah. multiple layers of living the story. You're living mm -hmm. it as you can from the Hudson Valley right now and getting yourself yeah. into all the textual resources. And then there's that living it in order to tell it in that really embodied and landed way. Is there, there must be a, is there a real word for that? Rooted. <laughs> rooted, yes. Maybe a rooted way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing that's going to be trickiest for me is I don't want to set it in the dark ages because I don't think in my study in, of myth, whenever you receive a myth, it actually has been around for much longer. Right. So, and we always have to see that, like by the time something is written down, it's coming to us from much earlier. And what seems to me to be a clue is that lioness didn't exist during the dark ages. Right. And that lioness is, is one of the key 
identifiers of Tristan. And Lion is probably, if it crumbled, if it existed, ends during the end of the Bronze Age. Right. And so what I'm really interested in is, and I haven't totally answered this for myself yet, is what would it be to set the story way earlier? Mm. Yeah. And that always just as a reader, and so my and my own fiction is playing with the 2000 years ago realm, which I fall into and fall out of because yeah. it's so slippery. And there's those ways in which well, we, we're less rooted in it, I guess, because there's less yeah. to be known. We cannot, we can't walk yeah. around the castles in the same way that we could from a relic from even, you know, a thousand years ago. It's a different yeah. feel. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So what brought you to this story? This is a very silly answer. So I grew up in a very literary family and who loved to tell stories. So I think I had some, I had a lot of knowledge of the Arthurian myths. I was, I was obsessed with the wizard Merlin mm. and with, you know, the ones in future King and the myths of Avalon. And I read all of those things, but I don't think I had any knowledge of the Tristan and his old story. And when I was 12, the very badly written, but well visually put together Tristan and his old by Ridley What's his name? He did um, Gladiator. Ridley Ridley Scott. Scott? Yeah. That Tristan and Isolde came out. Mm -hmm. And I I went to see it with a bunch of family members, not really thinking anything of it. And it like hit some acupuncture point in me. I walked out of the theater. And it's funny because this story has actually had that effect on a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. Like Wagner, a lot of people have come across, Joseph Campbell have come across the Tristan story and it's like a bug. It's infected Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And I was very affected. I cried for days afterwards. I went and read Le Morte Arthur. I read everything. I read the Tristan of Thomas, the Tristan of Gottfried. I was obsessive. Mm. I needed to read it all. Mm-hmm. And my parents were kind of like, well, at least it's great. She's really interested in this literary thing. Amazing. But it was obsessive. Yeah. And I think I've always known that it was the story I most wanted to write. Mm. Yeah from that point on, but that it would take such a phenomenal amount of research that I would have to really work my way up to it. Yeah. Right. And give it that time. Well, the 12 year old in me sees the 12 year old in you because my entire obsession, lifelong obsession with Irish literature and culture and history started with a Tom Cruise movie called Far and Away. That was deeply terrible. And I like... We were doing it in different decades with different stories and it swept me up and I said it created my whole life from there. So I understand. <laughs> it's amazing. I, it's like, it's also, I think like it's a necessary meeting. Like that was always coming for you. Right. And I do think the messages often come in very humorous packages like Tom Cruise movies. Yeah. Or James Ranko movies, which is... Oh, that's who was in that. I was like, because I, I can like see the poster in my mind because I was probably I in my early 20s going to see it and knew a bit more to truly roll my eyes and yet also love it yeah. at the same time. But yeah. that's what culture and storytelling is, right? It's not always going to be, this is the great epic that gets passed down. It's sometimes it's that yeah. movie that we saw that one weekend in August. And yeah. in my case, played over and over again on a VHS tape until I nearly broke it. <laughs> Me too. I was still in the VHS tape. Maybe it was a DVD. I don't know. It was, it was some retro yeah. thing. Oh, there's so many elements of what you've offered here that I want to explore. And I'm looking at my notes. So I'm 
watching you tell the story is as engaging as listening. So I can barely read my notes that I took while you were speaking. <laughs> but this idea of the trauma of the hero's journey was something that I wrote down and circled that I know is really connected to your current work because you have a book about yeah. the sacred masculine coming out now, but yeah. maybe we can explore that a bit. Well, I think there are always journeys. I oftentimes say with the hero's journey that I'm not looking to get rid of it. I'm looking to coppice it. Like, you know, when you cut back oaks mm -hmm. so that they sprout up many different trunks and it's like a contrapuntal polyphonous experience rather than just one homogenized linear <laughs> trunk. And so it's not that I'm looking to get rid of the hero's journey. It's mm -hmm. that I'm looking to widen it mm -hmm. and to coppice it back so that more interesting things can sprout. Because yeah. what I can see is that the hero's journey is about the individual. Mm -hmm. It's about conquering. It's about understanding yourself as other, as dominating, as extractive, as always moving towards a goal. And that it has not necessarily been kind to the tangled, complex, discordant, episodic experience of our lives. And especially for men, men mm -hmm. who feel like they have to constantly be, I mean, the thing about Tristan that I think is interesting is he's wounded emotionally and physically again and again, and he never has any time to heal because the hero's journey requires movement forward. Mm -hmm. And so he never takes the time to heal. So of course he's going to die from a small minor wound and a minor battle, because the truth is that he's been wounded from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And so I oftentimes think that in the hero's journey is about grinding the hero down so that they can barely even make it to the end. Mm -hmm. My favorite alternative to that is Wolfram von Aschenbach's Parseval, where the answer to the hero's journey is the anti-hero's journey, which is he finally stops trying to follow the rules of chivalry and the rules that he thinks he understands. And when he's in invited for a second time into the Grail King's castle, the wounded king, mm -hmm. he stops trying to be extractive to achieve the quest, to do what he's supposed to do. And he turns to the wounded king and he says, what ails thee? And it's the moment you step out of your story and ask for another story that you step to the side of the hero's journey and say, maybe there are other characters. Maybe I'm not the main character. Maybe I'm a side character. And maybe that's actually a much more generous, interesting place to inhabit. Right. Yeah. Oh, I love how you parse that for us, you know, and I've been in my work, I've been taking it over to the heroine's knot because I've been really... Huh. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's that sense of so often because looking at that tangle, I love to use the word tangle. That's one yeah. of my words I use so often, but that sense of our daily lives in which we are enacting the vast majority of our existence here is not going across the threshold and going out into some grand journey, especially in the last couple of years, especially through motherhood, especially through that sense of the rituals of every day and inhabiting the land on which we live and the lives in which we live and which we lead. So I've been really speaking of it as that not idea which seems to be very inherent to the heroine's idea itself, but I'm loving how you're taking the hero's idea and saying, okay, how can we further play with this image? And that coppicing idea is just really brilliant. Thank you. Okay, well, the nod is amazing, especially because it, it just weaves in, weaves all of those different weft and warp and the, the fates, the fates, Ariadne, we have all of these, it's beautiful. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Well, it's sort of that sense of when 
your work came to me. It was that sense of, of course, all of this seeming to come at the same time. And I feel like we need to underline that because it's remarkable. We live about five miles apart, have not yet met in person. I know. But you know, your stories of the earth are my stories of the earth, not in a universal, of course, because of the the land, but like, no, we we know the same trees. We we watch the same yeah. eagle probably going between. But I first heard of your work through the Trailblazery and Kathy Scott's work, which is based in Ireland, in Ireland. <laughs> and Irish culture. And it was the the miracle of Instagram in which it all kind of came full circle. And I said, I had to have a 3,000 mile away connection online to meet somebody who lives just up the ridge. But that's the remarkable nature of it all. It is. I think that it were so easy. It's so easy to demonize the internet. And yet it has like incredible mycelial intelligence of just mm. weaving people together who would have never otherwise grazed. Yes. Yeah. So you said the mycelial word. I would love for us yeah. to explore that a bit. Ever Since yeah. discovering your work, that has absolutely crafted for me an entirely new ship I didn't know that I needed. So can you just take us into, I mean, I don't know if it's possible to only go one, in, yeah. one inch deep. I think we have to go in the entire <laughs> biomass. Can you take us there a bit? Sure. Well, you know, even in a teaspoon of dirt, you have miles and miles of mycelial fungi. So, you know, we don't even need to go very deep to get quite a lot of yardage. <laughs> yeah. I've always loved fungi. They're, for me, they're kind of a muse. I have connective tissue disease. They're the connective tissue of ecosystems and forests. So there's, there's a lot of metaphorical and mythic resonance with them that I have. And I'm also just so in love with how they live interstitially. They, they confuse our ideas of where a species ends, where an individual ends. Do we live in between beings? Do we live in, in one node of cognition or in the relationship? And so that I really love the way that they show us that we are relationally constituted. A fungi, so mushrooms are that above ground sporulation event that look like individuals, but they're really connected to a much larger filamentous, like crocheted web of a hyphal thread, mycelial thread below ground that ferries nutrients between trees, acts as a bacterial highway, breaks down dead matter. So it actually it creates the soil. Mm. I really enjoy that they, they teach me how to make myself and my stories into a map of relationships rather than an enshrined individualism. Like I oftentimes say that fungi, if you pour them into an ecosystem, they become a map of relationships. So too should your myths, if you pour them into your land, become a map of those relationships. Mm. Sorry, this is what happens when I read your work and now listen to you. I'm just <laughs> like, I just need to pause and just marinate in all of these pieces for just a moment. Wow. Because I was just reading your essay on Substack that you actually were speaking of Tristan Nisold in yeah. terms of that relationship you've discussed and described a bit as that obsession, that sense of because yeah. the poison and the potion becoming one, they too became this oneness, which of course is something we romantically talk about as something that we are seeking in certain ways. And that really problematizes it at the human level in such a profound way but also has yeah. this real mycelial sort of resonance that says, yes, and the good and the bad are all contained together and there is no good and bad, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I, I love the idea of lichen, which is it looks like a being, 
that kind of leathery scrub on trees and rocks, but it's really a composite of algae, bacteria, fungi, yeasts, all collaborating to create one being. And the word for that is holobiont, which means it's a being that's composed of other beings. We are holobionts. You know, we have more bacterial cells in our body than we do human cells. And I think for me, it's, it's a very interesting way of thinking about romance that slips out of the heteronormative dualism, which is what does it mean to share a body with something else, to make another body? It can be, maybe it's painful, maybe it's terrifying. But in a moment when individual species are being wiped out, maybe we need our, to wet ourselves to other species in an uncomfortable way. Maybe we need to become composites in a more culpable and uncomfortable romantic way yeah right right yeah and this just to me this part of our conversation so underlines so much what i respect and am so excited about in your work is this sense of you allow us invite us to see mythology as something so urgent and so current and as if it has never been more necessary to tell these stories in this way because of that sense of actually i'm going to I'm going to reflect your own words back to you for a single moment because it's so in connection here. In a time when safety has become the goal of psychology and political discourse, paired with the talismanic abstractions of boundaries, I want to offer that becoming new is never safe. Survival is never safe. It is always a breach, a break in the skin. It is a leap across the abyss. It is the moment you leap into another body. And that ability to so clearly speak into this lack of safety that so many of us are experiencing but refuse to voice and say, if we stay home, if we do this just right, we'll be safe. And yet the entire essence of existence is in opposition to that. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I have such sympathy for wanting, I'm a survivor of early trauma, so I understand that stable value systems, these boundaries, can just help you survive, right. you need them sometimes. And I, I think that it's all about oscillation. It's mm -hmm. like, when do I need to create these boundaries so that I can do a little self-care, but then open up right. to these more frightening incursions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer about how that happens. Right. It's messy, right? very messy. I oftentimes say like the sacred leaks, mm -hmm. like, you know, when you start to get leaky and let other things leak into you, that's when you're going to be inoculated with, with a story. It's like, you know, when, when you open up to, you're like, I'm going to take this Tom Cruise movie really seriously. <laughs> that's a great example. It's like all of a sudden, like you're inoculated with this incredible, incredible mythic mycelium that takes you on a rhizomatic continuity all the way to Ireland. Right. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. You just made, I mean, Thank you for making Tom Cruise's work so profound. But the 12-year-old of me is just <laughs> deeply grateful for, <laughs> for the validation and the depth of her journey. But yeah, of course, and it almost seems cliche to even say this, but of course it is important to mention, like we're recording this in the middle of 2022 when we're all still trying yeah. to figure out what is it going to be like to maintain our own boundaries and go out into oh. the world. It's never been more present in our lifetimes to think about yeah. it in this way. And I think it still bears yeah. repeating to say, let's engage with this idea of how we re-engage with the world, mythically, mycelially, yeah. opposed to just saying like, I don't freaking know anymore. No, there's no right answer, which is kind of where we've gotten in a really kind of nihilistic perspective on yeah. like, I don't know, do I wear yeah. a mask at ShopRite? 
it's as simple as that. And there's so much more to it. I know. I mean, this is something that I'm just figuring out day to day. Mm -hmm. I have autoimmunity and illness. I've had COVID. Can I get COVID again? You know, is COVID around forever? And just the ways in which we become apathetic to deal with it. We're just like, oh, it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Right. I do think that storytelling, we love stories. We love other characters. And so any way we can kind of enliven ourselves out of this paralyzed stupor Mm -hmm. will be necessary. For me, I think the way I'm doing that is through stories. Yeah. Wow. That sense of pulling us out of the paralyzed stupor seems so close to where we should want to end this conversation. Yeah, there's so much more I want to explore. And so here's the place that in some ways it's a diversion, but I think we just, you just told us a story of all these sacred cul-de-sacs and and side quests. Mm -hmm. That Lord of the Hunt that Tristan embodied, that wildness in opposition and in companionship to King Mark's Lord of the Manor kind of concept. Uh-huh. Let's just go. I because I'm feeling that tug in myself so strongly yeah. right now as I engage with your work, as I'm reading Entangled Life, as I, you know, I'm like up to my oh, my favorite book, yeah. <laughs> but that tension that I know I'm feeling right now is feeling like a deeply domesticated 40-something woman mm-hmm. who grew up in America watching things on VHS tape and eventually was able to dive deeper, find ways to hopefully decolonialize parts of my mind, to, to look at mm-hmm. things more expansively. I'm feeling like there's such a tension that's within me, but feels like it's something of the moment. How do we look at this Lord of the Hunt, Lord of the Manor, Queen of the Hunt, Queen of the Manor, and because it's beyond gender and it's both sides. Speaking into that tension in those middle spaces, that seems like a really ripe and fertile space and also a really difficult one, but it speaks to those tensions you were talking about before of the leaks and how things come through. Well, for me, I always say that we need a biodiversity of narratives. Mm -hmm. Whenever we think we have two options, it's because we have two hands, Mm -hmm. but how many hands does the woodpecker have? Does the mycorrhizal system have? Our dualisms are, are very anthropocentric. So I think sometimes when we feel stuck, like we have to choose between mom and dad, we have to choose between Lord of the Hunt and, and Lord of the Manor. What I was trying to do with my book that is about to come out on rewilding the sacred masculine is say is it's not to say that there's an opposition to the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. It's saying that there are 40 different options and probably many more. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a, a resilient ecosystem is resilient in as much as it represents biodiversity. Mm-hmm. The more species are there, the more able it is to shift to climatological pressures and unexpected happenings. Mm-hmm. When you only have two species, when you have a homogenized tree farm, it's much easier for a blight to come through and obliterate it. Right. Same is true for our guts. Mm-hmm. So I oftentimes think, think of capitalism as being a narrative dysbiosis or patriarchy. Mm-hmm. It's like you took antibiotics, your gut was ravaged, no good microbes are left either. So a monologuing pathogen has too much room. And the answer isn't to necessarily to say like, no, it's the Lord of the hunt. It says it's the Lord of the hunt. It's the magician. It's the, you know, the trans singer, you know, it's, it's the lichenized lovers. It's all of these different things. We're going to all throw them on the compost heap and something will sprout. Like the mess is, whenever I feel myself, I am a very clean 
obsessive person. And I'm, you know, it's funny, I talk about compost and mess, but I'm like a, kind of a little OCD about, you know, that's in its right place. This is it. But whenever I feel that beginning to show up in my work, I know that I have to make it messier. Mm. Whenever I start to say like, there's this and there's that, I'm like, no, there are probably 10 other things. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's 22 cards in the major arcana. There's 78 cards yeah, exactly. in the deck. Why yeah. do we think we have to live between the high priestess and the emperor? Like, wait, exactly. stop. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. I was I was teaching a workshop last night, and I I know that I'm in the right group of people when I mentioned I'm like, oh, you know, I won't send out the recording right away in the morning because I'm speaking to Sophie Strand, and I saw lights, mm-hmm. eyes light up around the Zoom room, and I'm like, all right, I'm I'm, I'm in the right space, and so it was just a brilliant moment of confirmation. But what I, we were working on last night was, you know, there's three billion plus ways to be queen, and oh, beautiful, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, I was I was telling the story of Isis or Aset. Mary Magdalene and Queen Maeve. And I'm like, because I no single narrative wanted to come through. And I'm like, well, we could sit here for yeah. 3 billion stories, but let's start with yeah. these three. So, mm-hmm. oh, Sophie, I'm so grateful to you for this exploration. I feel like it's Same. only just begun. I'm so, so excited. Can you just tell people a little bit more about how to find you, how to follow you, where to find you next? Yeah. You can find me right on the Hudson River, right where you are. <laughs> <laughs> But you can find me on Substack at sophiestrand.substack.com, at Cosmogony on Instagram, C-O-S-M-O-G-Y-N-Y. And I have a book coming out, The Flowering Wand, which is available for pre-order. And I'm offering, a, I don't know when this will come out, but I'm offering a course right now that will probably be available through, through the summer mm-hmm. via Advaya called Myth and Mycelium. So yeah, those are ways that we can connect. Excellent. I love to be bothered. Yeah. The one thing I will say is I, I believe all thinking, thinking happens interstitially. Mm. I think all of my best thinking does not happen in my brain. It happens in conversation with other people. Mm. So come bother me. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I will share all of those links. I promise to continue to bother you because you bother me Great. in the best possible like, way. Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> that sacred bothering of like, oh, right. I needed to have that jiggled in the back and I needed to have that (laughs) tweaked. And now I realize that inspires an entire new path of growth. So thank you so much for this exploration and for your story today. Well, thank you so much. Hope there will be more soon and in person. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for tuning into the Not Work podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at NotWorkPodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. The traditional Irish reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. It's by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Find out about their music and shows at BillyandBeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.